And welcome to the Law and Business Podcast. On this episode is the most frequent guest, John Eastwood. How you doing, John? Yeah, doing well, doing well. <laughs> yeah, I'm here in Taipei. Um, you know, my colleagues in Shanghai have uh, apparently weathered quite a bit of the storm uh, in the sense that uh, Shanghai has not been so heavily affected. Uh, Taiwan, uh, in the midst of this coronavirus situation, is... is uh, is actually doing really well. It's become a bit of a model for, uh, and it's been getting plaudits from you know different ends of the political spectrum of the United States. You get like uh, you know Wall Street Journal, um, you know, recently uh, said you know from kind of uh, an editorially right uh, perspective, uh, you know, was lauding that Taiwan could be a model for what other countries could do. Uh, and then on the the other side of the spectrum, we, I think we just got a shout out from Barbara Streisand on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and the, the entertaining thing for that it was that the, the Taiwan government. I mean, and I love the job they're doing on coronavirus. I mean, we've only we're still only in the three hundreds at this point. Um, you know, here on as we record this in, in early April. Um, you know, but uh, in terms of number of infected, but you know, um, the Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs in Taiwan retweeted, uh, or uh, you know, Barbara Streisand's. Um, uh, tweet and said, "Oh, you know, you're just basically you're you know you're so awesome. Um, thank you for saying this. And you know, uh, one can only just look at the at, you know how exactly the same concept of cooperation uh, to reach uh, great heights together, you know, mutually working mutually between scientists and government um, are exactly mirrored in the story for A Star Is Born." And I, I kind of looked at that and I thought, like, you haven't seen A Star is Born, have you? <laughs> so this report affairs didn't quite, like, tweet too well on that one. I think, you know, they need, like, Chris Christopherson does not come out from the ending of, of, of A Star is Born. Well, at least that version of it, John, I, I, I mean, <laughs> which is, what, the fourth fourth version of, of that of that story. <laughs> I was just talking with my wife and kids about that this morning. Is that uh, we're up to four versions of, uh, of, of a star is born. And, I actually think it's yeah. five. Five. Ah! Yes. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> I don't think any of them end well. They're not happy stories. And, I mean, but, but, but you know, it's the whole idea, like a star rises and one falls and you know, so that's not the, the the point of the story is not that two stars rise together and, and reach their greatest heights and happiness and, and you know. anyway anywho anywho um, <laughs> yeah no these, these are these are these are um, as the Chinese uh, famously said these are interesting times. But what what's it like going in and out of buildings in Taipei? Like, are you? I mean, we're we're stuck at home. We're on an order that if it's not essential, and of course. The definition of essential, I think, is constitutionally problematic because you've got states like New York that say that, say that uh, alcohol is, uh, you know, not a problem. Pennsylvania says we're shutting down all the alcohol store, all the alcohol stores because they're <laughs> state run. And Massachusetts has said that um, alcohol is essential. Medical marijuana uh, is not essential. <laughs> and, you know, so, so, so there might be a little vagueness here as to what, what essential might be, but we're, we're, we're not going out unless it's the grocery store. Um, and even then, you know, may, hope we, we stocked up long enough to, keep us um, interested in dinner <laughs> for, oh, yeah. for a while. Um, the, the, that pack, that gigantic pack of chicken thighs is uh, not exactly exciting, yeah. but you know, it's in the freezer. Uh, <laughs> but well, we, um, we do approach like the trips to Costco, like it's a military operation, like, you know, in and out and got the masks and don't touch anything right. other than what we're buying. And, and uh, we do have uh, like, for example, right now I'm in the office, but we're in fact coming up this next week. We're implementing, even though Taiwan is in a very fortunate uh, situation, that could change at any time. And so, in line with that, we are implementing a lot of. Uh, uh, it's a new acronym for me: WFH, uh, Work from Home. And it's the first time I've had an acronym in a long time that had F in it that did 
stand for something more prurient. But uh, I'm used to I'm used to that in the in the copyright standpoint. Work for hire. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we get like the the yeah. So oh man, the IP lawyers and the uh, and the employment lawyers, uh, you know, are going to have to fight. You know, have to have like a you know dance off. I don't know. (laughs) because <laughs> <So, laughs> you can't be close enough to actually fight you can't touch someone so you have to have a dance off right uh, and probably recorded from a home studio but in in taiwan uh in our office in shanghai fortunately um you know uh, most people are, you know we have a lot of people working from home we've also been staggering um you know commute time so that people who take mass transit don't have okay. to be in a car filled with people um and we've also been looking at um you know, uh, you know, just sort of the essentialness of what people can do from home and how many of our operations can be done fully from home in which things like um, collecting court notices sent by mail, um, you know, receiving phone calls, uh, what things, you know, have to be done in person um, without damaging the ability to represent clients. And, and I think, um, you know, we can actually do a lot. We can do a lot from home. And, and you know, it's very fortunate as I look at, um, you know, sort of what's going on in the United States. I mean, I, I think that there's some good signs that things might be changing, you know, that, uh, that people, you know, I, you know, of course, uh, my mom would very clearly say, it's like, hey, people should have been washing their hands anyway. Yes, <laughs> yes that, that um, is true. So we may come out of this either like, um, you know, uh, we could come out of this uh, physically, um, uh, we call it, it's like physically safer and, and you know, more mentally damaged because, you know, probably for the rest of my life, I'm going to be like washing my hands until they're like, until they're chapped or something like that. <laughs> I might start exhibiting some OCD tendencies. I was going to say, you get to have those Howie Mandel hands is what you're going to have. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like, you know, you get that, you see people working, you know, the doors at these places um, and you know, with, with the alcohol sprays and everything like that. And you see their hands and it's like, wow, you, guys, you should really have gloves. Um, because the hands are just like, you know, the, the palms of their hands are just falling apart, you know, with the, with the, you know, the dry skin and everything else from just way too much exposure to alcohol. Yeah. So, 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 so how, how is your clientele handling the economic effects? Because I'm certainly seeing economic effects. We've had four previous episodes in the last two weeks of this podcast talking about economic and, and uh, mental health effects on, uh, you know, for the pandemic. So, so what are your clients like in, in Taipei? How are they handling the, the economic changes? Right. So, so there are some things, I mean, one thing is that, uh, you know, we, we, our employment team has been getting a ton of questions about the, about furloughs, layoffs, you know, what sure. they can ask employees to give up on, you know, what things have to be done on a consensual basis, what changes they can force. And so people talk about, of course, reduction of hours. Um, you know, there's some people, they, they don't want to lay people off. They know that there will be a recovery eventually. You know, this is a temporary situation, but they really don't want to, um, you know, they can't, they just can't justify it. I mean, especially, you know, people, depending on the, on the sector, you know, like retail and manufacturing and things like that, you can't, you can't get by too easily if you've got a thousand workers in a factory um, and, you know, everybody's waiting for that widget to come from, from, from Wuhan or some other place that's been under lockdown. Um, And so the Wuhan situation isn't just, you know, Wuhan's lockdown, which they've, they've been relaxing, um, using certain technologies to keep track um, of people who now can venture out of and venture into Wuhan. But there's also, you know, if you're a factory in Shenzhen or if you're a factory someplace else and you're waiting for that widget, you know, you're idle. Um, you can't, right. you know, and, and come up with an alternative, uh, especially under these kind of these situations where there's lockdowns. And, and there's also molds and tooling and things like that that enter into it. So on the economic basis, um, one of the key problems is that, um, you know, in terms of the PRC, a lot of people think of it very mono, in a very monolithic sense. They think of China, um, 
but it's actually, you know, uh, the small and medium sized enterprises account for about 60% of the Chinese economy and about 80% of jobs. And in a recent survey from the Chinese Association of SMEs, found that about a third of the respondents expected that they could cover fixed expenses for about a month. And another third would be able to cover maybe two months expenses and only about 10% thought they could get it out to the, um, hold on until the second half of 2020. So but the, the, one month, the one month is not that bad, honestly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, so that's, that's you know, it, it, I think that's, that's a, a big thing for them is that it's put them under stress. So if you start from that sure. standpoint, how do people behave when they're under stress? And how, do, how, how have Chinese companies behaved already when they weren't under stress and making money hand over fist? Um, but of course they were, when I say hand over fist, I mean, you know, of course, it's like Japan in the 1980s. They're just cranking out stuff, um, you know, at very high um, volumes, but not necessarily really high margins. Right. So, yeah, you, you know, know you asked- I mean, I think... I was, I was going to joke. You asked me about stress. Ask me about any client whose, whose patent or trademark gets a, uh, gets an office action. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And I think, I think in, in the PRC, you know, there's there over the years, there's been a few good trends. Um, I mean, we've talked about some of this in the previous podcast is that in China, there's some good trends wherein famous marks have gotten better protections and some of the more ridiculous aspects of how, um, you know, local companies would be able to register what in the entire uh, rest of the world was a very famous mark. And, you know, these kind of uh, trademark squatters would get away with that. And so in one sense, China had been moving in a very positive direction. But from a standpoint of if you are licensing um, tech to Chinese companies, or if you're licensing um, a brand or if you're licensing, you know, there are always people have always put up with a certain amount of cheating and a certain amount of underreporting. And I, and I right. think um, that, you know, people's worst, you know, inclinations when their company is on the line um, from a mental standpoint, companies, if they think, well, um, who do I, who do I really have to pay? And I think, you know, in the U.S. there's been some development on this as well. I mean, uh, with regards to bankruptcy or with regards to how these things are treated with a distressed company. But uh, and maybe, and maybe that could be an interesting thing I mean, from the U.S. standpoint. Well, I think from, from the U.S. standpoint, when you're looking at a, uh, a trademark license, what's new is we have a Supreme Court decision um, from October. October that I think a lot of people are still kind of trying to figure out um, as the new year comes, comes along what the ramifications for it are and to uh, uh, just set this up for you and then give you some background. Uh, there's a section of the bankruptcy code called 11, three, uh, uh, 11 USC 365 N um, and it, that, that was implemented in the 90s, and it basically states that for intellectual property, and specifically defined as patents, uh, copyrights, and trade dress, but not trademarks, um, the uh, licensees could choose to either treat a license agreement as terminated because of the bankruptcy, or to retain their rights and therefore their obligations under the license agreements. So... Now that that the Supreme Court ruling came through, the Supreme Court said, well, if the trademark license still exists, then we're going to treat it like every other contract uh, at, under bankruptcy. And, and therefore, it could either be rejected and treated as, and then therefore treated as a breach of the licensing uh, contract um, or, uh, or not. And, and, you know, so now you have this case where the situation where patents, copyrights, and trade dress are treated one way because it's specifically mentioned in the statute. And since Congress never wrote the word trademark when when writing the bankruptcy, <laughs> rewriting the bankruptcy code in the 90s, well, now we're treating intellectual property that is still registered at the Patent and Trademark Office very different under a license or licensee agreement if the licensor goes bankrupt. Oh, wow. Well, you know, the tendency for some time has definitely been 
and this has been a big struggle for for all sorts of European and American companies dealing with situations out here is that in general, um, you know, uh, bankruptcy administrators uh, in Asia have tended to, um, I think they really hunker down. And so, you know, it's almost impossible to get a court to re, um, reassess situations or to try to change behavior when an administrator decides to uh, only pay salaries, electric bills, and rent. You know, you know that 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 I find to be uh, to be interesting because at some point, if there's a license agreement there, like the royalties have to be paid because the factory obviously has to, ha- you know, has to have the ability to make make something and get that, you know, and get those plans from somewhere, um, you know. So whichever way the money flows, whoever, you know, if the licensor is declaring bankruptcy, you have to pay more than just that. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, you know, especially when a company finally like shuts down, and it's like, well, you know, uh, you know, companies can slide along in in under bankruptcy uh, reorganization for quite a long time, and it's it's hard when you have to know somebody's just cranking out tons of widgets, uh, you know, trying to stay alive, and you know, it's like, man, but I'm not getting any paychecks from them, <laughs> not a single royalty payment. That's not right. <laughs> So, you know, it's probably important to hope that people don't go into bankruptcy because, uh, you know, that companies out in Asia don't go into bankruptcy necessarily because, um, you know, from, from a standpoint, it's like you want them to actually have a reason to want to, 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 to survive and pay you. Uh, I guess if you have a company that, um, you know, that slips to the point where they file for bankruptcy protection and you have an administrator appointed, um, you know, then you have less, uh, maybe less leverage in terms of using the courts. Um, and I think, you know, that's uh, already, there's also a problem internally to, to some companies. Some companies, of course, really get it. I mean, you know, like you get to, a lot of the software companies, of course, really get it. They, they understand the importance of intellectual property. But uh, when it comes to trademark, uh, you know, that's another thing. It's a whole other issue where, you know, uh, we have also noticed that you know, through the coronavirus, a lot of the fashion clients that we've represented, uh, luxury goods clients, um, they simply have no budget. I was going to say, that they, had to be the first market to start dipping. Yeah, well, you know, there's a fashion house uh, located in northern Italy. Um, there's quite a few of those. But exactly. I mean, <laughs> uh, and, man, it is, uh, you know, and, and that's the thing. Is I think, you know, as we found with 2007 to 2009, um, with the you know the, the huge upheaval economic upheaval we had back then, um, the, the key is uh, to do everything possible to try to accommodate, find a way um, to help the client adapt to the changed circumstances. So if their budget you know gets cut in half or gets cut down to nothing, uh, they have to do things. Is not to be a, like you know not to be angry about it, but just to realize the reality that these people are facing. Um, because the fashion industry has massive ups, uh, ups and downs, and despite there being like supermodels and people coated with diamonds at their shows, and it's seemingly like every single one of their dresses—that's not the know, everyday hair part hair. Of, of of fashion. No, and there's huge costs that go behind that. I mean, it's all like uh, you know that is the tip of the spear. There's like just so much that has to be spent on, you know, that gets spent along the way for luxury goods, uh, and so these companies are always um, quite a bit tighter, and their margins are not what people would suspect well no no, yeah no and 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 as somebody who has not just prosecuted um (laughs) excuse me uh trademarks in the in the fashion uh uh, industry but also has has handled infringement suits as well the it is the margins go with the quality like you will you do pay for the quality of of the actual material the sewing the the design there's there's a whole lot that actually does does go into that oh absolutely absolutely i mean you know there's a huge difference between like you know the um i mean some of these companies they they really cut their teeth um as mass uh in mass production once upon a time in the sense that like you know you say you take hermes hermes um you know uh they were famous. What they kind of grew from was, you know, they made all the, I guess, the French armies um, 
you know, horse bridles and yes. other things like that, because the, the, the army in you know, World War One was a horse drawn army or you, you take, um, uh, you know, the, the Burberry, you know, the trench coats, literally, I mean, trench coat, you know, like not many of people course. think, why, why was it called a trench coat? Because people wore it in the trenches just trying to stay dry. Um, so all of this stuff kind of comes around to like, you know, they, these things, have, their products were tested in some very unforgiving conditions. And then they spent, you know, maybe they, it's fancier, but in terms of the actual commitment to quality, um, you know, you almost have something sort of like, uh, you know, when you hear uh, in the electrical engineering, uh, you know, world or, you know, there's electronic products and people will say, oh, our switches are military grade or something like that. Well, Hermes is sort of like the kind of like, you know, with their leather goods and things like that. You know, you have to, yeah, you know, that's kind of, a, that's the origins, you know? Sure. You know, you know, the, the, the talk about the, the, the fashion houses and the fact that we mentioned the, the U S bankruptcy code uh, earlier, just really, it popped in my head. One of the, the real real confusing aspects of the Supreme Court's ruling. And it's not necessarily the Supreme Court's ruling because the word trademarks is not in the, uh, in, in the statute. But for example, in, in, in apparel, uh, a factory can be uh, uh, making products with trademarks and that have registered trade dress. You know, other factories and other industries can, can be making products that are patented or or copyrighted and also being made with a trademark on it. And, you know, what happens if the licensor goes bankrupt and you've got these, you've got a contract that, that has one type of intellectual property in one section, another type of intellectual property in another section of the same agreement. How do we treat that agreement? Because obviously trademark law doesn't, isn't just sitting there all by itself. I mean, it, it goes along with a product. That's true. That's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, and so, and so we're going to be able to say, you know, the, the, the patent part is, is terminated, but the, but now we're going to treat the trade, the patent license as terminated, but the trademark license is still going to somehow exist and survive. And therefore, you know, you'll then be in breach for not, for not file following through with the trademark license. I mean, it's really odd and bizarre when you think about it. I mean, it's, Congress's fault for not writing it correctly, but um, I mean, <laughs> it really is a, a, a bizarre, uh, a bizarre logical result. Well, and, and you know, we also see some really weird behavior out here in Asia. I mean, uh, one one trend that we've been seeing recently, which I think is only going to be exacerbated by the current uh, economic stress, is going to be um, you know, pushing off of uh, infringing activities to affiliated entities, uh, claiming that just because a, um, a controlled subsidiary is technically a separate legal person, its behavior can't be imputed to its parents. Really? And, you know, the legal concept of piercing the corporate veil, in, you know, for example, in uh, Taiwan and China can be difficult. So, um, you know, when we write to companies, even like, you know, so there'll be a subsidiary, like a massive, massive uh manufacturer that has like you know hundreds of thousands or a million workers or so and and so you know uh on behalf of like say a u.s or european client we may write to them and say hey uh you're using their ip you should uh, should pay up <laughs> and the infringing subsidiary comes back with like whoa whoa wait a second i gotta talk to my parent company because uh, i don't do anything without and this is how they actually talk on the phone they're like oh well we can't do anything without talking to our parent company and uh <laughs> We're like, well, you know, come back to them a couple of days later. So what do they say? And the infringing subsidiary is like, um, yeah, and they spew out a whole bunch of like time wasting, you know, nonsense about, well, how'd you do this calculation? Why do you think this? And we're like, you know, sometimes we're coming back to this as well. Your, your own website, yeah, buddy, your own website actually has a, a, a like little, um, like almost like a countdown clock of the number of, of the number of downloads of right. the software that infringes <laughs> and, and you've got 20,000 of them on your website. Your website has this like little, you know, little counter clock that tells us how many has been done. That's really cute. Thank you. Thank you for helping us with the calculation. And our client charges this much for each copy of it. So bada boom. And, um, uh, 
But as they try to waste our time, we always go and we eventually contact the parent company. And the uh, parent company, even if they've been a long-time uh, licensee, um, the, the, it's, the reaction would, could be charitably characterized as um, new phone, who dis? <laughs> <laughs> so I... we... <laughs> So we always tell them, it's like your sub owes a ton of money. And they say that you're, you're the one instructing them not to pay. And the, the parent is like, oh, they're totally different from us. And we're like, well, both companies have the same CEO, same board of directors, same address. And they're like, well, if you, if you like, I could see if I could reach the people that are infringing subsidiary. I can, I'll see if I could reach them and see if they'd be willing to negotiate. And I'm like, wait a minute, you're going to ask yourself if you can pay? I mean, and they're like, well, I'll try to reach them. And I'm like, well, you're going to walk down the hallway? I mean, that's where they are. They're in the same building as you. I mean, you can ride the elevator to their headquarters. There's like, you know, um, you know, it's, 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 it's absurd. But that's that does sound of, absurd. Yes. It is. It is. It, and it, actually, the way it comes around, though, I mean, a very typical thing for for companies to do when they're dealing with like this nonsense though, it's like eventually, you know, the parent, you know, the something slips and so you have like the, you know, the parent's license comes up or a business opportunity in which they're like, oh, well, we have a chance to build a billion, you know, widgets for, um, you know, kind of one of the big American companies or something mm -hmm. like that. And, and they're sitting there like, oh, you know, they come back with hat in hand and all be like, uh, oh, we need to, um, you know, we need to see about, um, you know, uh, you approving us to do this other product. And then we're, that's when it comes around. It's like, oh, uh, you know, you're kind of a, a bit of a jerk last time. So, <laughs> you know, hey, why don't you walk down the hallway and get your little subsidiary to come back? <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of silly because like you know I, I think you know they don't realize I mean th there's so much I mean I, I think in your career and my career we, we've we've seen there's there's law firms there's counterparties that we again can actually chalk up in our career as having been pleasurable uh, good uh, counterparties because there were companies that reacted appropriately and responsibly yes and you know I mean uh, I've seen things where they said you know uh, parties have come out and they've immediately said oh my god you know Yes, yes, the software that was included with this product. Um, apparently, one of our engineers took a shortcut. We're ashamed and sorry about this. That was only a prototype. Uh, we are completely canceling that line of product. Um, that was a mistake, and that's one of our staff did this. It's not a company policy. We, we appreciate this, and we are tremendously sorry. And we're, you know, we're going to incur a pretty massive loss on this, but we're, we're not, basically, we're, we're <laughs> you know, we are, I, you know. I, yeah. I hear you very well. And, you know, the one thing I will say is that I find that happening less and less as my career, uh, my career goes on. But, um, but I certainly have, have dealt with, with plenty of situations where the other side does say that. Um, and, and then there are plenty of times where, uh, I, you know, I had a copyright infringement case where, um, you looked at my client's product and then you looked at the defendant's product and basically this was my complaint was exhibit, you know, whenever we start, you know, whenever we started with the exhibits and like exhibit A says, you know, here's this. And then you look at exhibit A and I called it A prime so that you can see the defendant's version of it. And it has all the exact same words. And you also look, is that the exact same typo as well? Yep, it's the exact same typo, the same, you know, you know, the couple spelling mistakes, not that they were done on purpose, you know, like Rand McNally used to do with, with maps, but like the same spelling mistakes and the same typos are there too. And it's like, your honor, where can, can we just like move on please? And an opposing counsel um, was just a brick wall on, on everything in that particular case. Um, you know, where I had a settlement um, conference in December and I was um, not very, um, not very happy going into it, but um, basically the first thing that the defendants did in that particular case, and that was a trademark infringement case, was they finally gave me a, um, a, a piece of paper that was the order 
of all of the units of that product line from the factory. Now, why they couldn't have given it to me six months prior or why they couldn't have given it to me a year prior when I, when we first met and sat in front of a judge, I don't know, <laughs> but um, <laughs> you know, just give me the one doc. All, all they need to do is give me the one document said, here's the number that was, that was ordered. And why don't we just figure this out? Cause it'll be cheaper if we figure and hammer it out than if we, than if we drag it out. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I like. I always enjoy the ones who are willing to engage in a in an efficient way. Like the ones who realize that this is sort of like, you know. I mean, you know, especially for for clients that are like friend licensors or clients that are, um, you know, they're they're big people. They understand. You know, they're trying to do business. Uh, they don't want to chase. Right. You know, uh, they don't want to spend a lot of time on litigation and things like that, but they will if you really force it. If you really just take it to an absolute unreasonable length, they will finally sue. And, and, and that's the thing is like when you've given somebody a chance to do like everything, you know, like, look, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, you know, in many cases, I feel as an attorney, we're trying to save, save these people who owe royalties. We're throwing them a lifeline. It's like, look, you can actually solve this. Like we're not actually, you know, if we went to, if we took this to litigation, your behavior would be so egregious that we could probably get, uh, you know, treble damages and we could get all sorts of other stuff. And, you know, we could, um, we could hammer you until you, until you like fall into pieces or something, but that takes time and a lot of money and a lot of trouble. And, um, but if you're willing to just, just engage with us, like, like normal human beings, um, and on a business level, just say like, just, just cut a check. I'm, I'm, you know? I'm telling you as, as, as much as I a hundred percent agree with you, the longer I'm practicing law, the less that happens. Yeah. Yeah. That's you, true. That's you, true. You know, I have, um, I have counseled quite a few clients recently about drafting a cease and desist letter. And I, and I certainly have, um, I certainly have a new client where I said, look, I think a cease and desist letter is necessary for you. But I also think that you shouldn't expect absolutely no response whatsoever from it. And, yeah. and a lot of people are shocked and surprised to hear that. Um, but I certainly think, especially in today's um, economic environment where there are a lot of questions, I'm fine. I, I think that a, a lot of people are going to say, you know what? I don't even want to spend money on that. I'm going to ignore it because maybe, maybe the party sending that just wants to rattle a saber and that's about it. Well, yeah, and I think I think that ties in pretty well with you know some people have almost got like a, a certain level of immunity, uh, you know, built up against uh, attorney letters because they they've gotten a lot of you know kind of uh, BS letters uh, from people who are like oh um, you know because I mean I've also had clients uh, working out here in you know Taiwanese companies uh, Chinese companies and so on. You know, it's like they actually you know you know. You know, especially if somebody's got like some sort of uh, Chinese medicine, um, you know, salve or ointment or something like that, that has, mm -hmm. you know, it's like their family secret for, you know, 50, 60 years. They don't need some, you know, some moron writing to them and saying, oh, uh, we think that you're, um, you know, you know, your, <laughs> your Chinese medicine ointment infringes the, uh, you know, the, the patent that we have on it. It's just like. No, it doesn't. You know, like this, <laughs> this is, this, this thing is like 70 years old, you dummy, you know, and, and likewise, you know, there's some of these Taiwanese companies, it's like, you know, they, uh, you know, they actually are the world leader in their technology. So the idea like, oh, you know, I mean, they, they've spent so much on R&D and that like, you know, coming over to them and saying like, you know, well, you're, um, your facial recognition, blah, 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 like, you know, is, is uh, violating our patent. And it's like, well, you know, no, and, and, and when you start digging deep, so people get a lot of nonsense, and especially, like, I guess, you know, there's so much of the patent troll thing, I mean, and, I, and I'm careful about that, because uh, I've had clients who were, you know, like, university professors and, uh, you know, inventors who have been called patent trolls. They're not patent trolls. They're just an inventor. They're, like, somebody who had a good idea, you know, but they're not, like, you know, I mean, like some, there's other people who have just, they accumulate big piles of patents and just, you know, try to use that to crap on the world. And right, I, and exactly. I, and, I, and I can even respect that a little bit. I mean, I understand, I understand that like 
somebody owns a right and they spent money to obtain a right. But the idea of like, you know, just shooting out like in a shotgun method without really paying attention and just hoping of collecting in, you know, a tiny fraction, I guess, I guess it is one pathway to becoming, you know, wealthy, but uh, it, it's also caused a problem for legitimate rights holders. And I'm not saying they're not, you know, uh, I, I may have stepped in one there, but I mean, well, that's but, okay. for the stand- but I, I think that it causes a problem when you have a company that has a long established, uh, you know, leadership in a, in a technological field and, you know, as legitimate as can be. And then when they write to a, a company about, you know, an infringement situation on a very legitimate basis and they've got, you know, good concerns about it. And then like, you know, the company yeah, completely, uh, the company completely ignores it, which, which is not a good position to be in. And I think maybe, uh, you know, in Asia coming up, especially with uh, the coronavirus related disruptions in which a lot of companies are going to be scratching for their lives. Uh, you know, the last people they want to pay is uh, going to be some foreign um, uh, licensor. I, I, I understand that completely. I do. I, I mean, you do, you know, we don't necessarily have the same, uh, the same situation here with our clientele, but when a client t- client comes to us and says, look, we think our patent is being infringed. Uh, I would say that the first, um, the first thought that we really have is let's dig into the claims. We've got to dig into the claims and take a look at the embodiment of the, of the other product. And, um, you know, I, I, I really struggle with the, um, with the IP troll firms. And I've had to deal with a couple of those also in my time, like, Hey, this one photograph is up on your website. That'll be $50,000. No, no, (laughs) no, it won't. (laughs) That's, you know, and people who have like, uh, I mean, there are, there's, I mean, there's been some, some, you know, massive, uh, you know, there's been some interesting examples of like people who basically turned their entire firm around for, for just doing, you know, patent troll work. And it's, uh, I mean, it's not my practice. It's not like, you know, um, you know, as I've said, I've, I've worked for some individual inventors and university professors and, you know, people who have had little businesses and then they just saw that like, you know, they're the little guy. And, and I do feel that there's good justice in that, that in fighting for, for those guys who, you know, they're, they've got a company that's starting up like, you know, in the almost in the stereotypical way coming out of their garage or something. And, you know, it's uh, the world's a better place if innovation gets encouraged. Um, and, it, you know, it's also really terrible when like people go and they, they like set up, um, you know, they, they try to trust a, a factory uh, in China or, or elsewhere. You know, they, they're like, OK, you're going to be my manufacturing buddy. And it's a bit pathetic, but I've gotten, I, I've gotten, I've been getting a few of these things where clients will come to me and they'll be like, oh, well, you know, what do I really need you for? Um, I shouldn't say clients like prospective clients, but people are like, I, I just got attorney in a box. And, <laughs> you know, so I've got like a whole bunch of forms, including licensed things and this and that. And I'm, and I'm looking at him and I'm saying like, well, you know, none of that stuff keeps in mind, for example, like um, what jurisdiction you know, and how are you going to do your dispute resolution? Uh, some of these agreements that they come up with, because they try to throw in their own dispute resolution, they'll cite to um, arbitration tribunals that simply don't exist. Um, they don't understand the terminology that would be used for a court, or they'll, or they'll simply say, well, the other side insists that the, uh, the court should be, um, you know, the local district courts um, over in Farafistan where they're at. And it's like, oh, man, that's not a good way to go. Um, and we'll, we'll also see these things where they they uh, uh, they don't keep in mind like you know a lot of times when you think about enforcement um, you know if if a deal falls apart and some of these do quite rapidly um, so we had a guy that that he came to us and he's like he wanted to uh, he had no idea that he he was about to sign an assignment of all of his trademarks and that assignment was not a license uh, because he was a lay person in this area. And so I explained that to him. I said, you, are, you realize that this agreement has been drafted around the idea that you are transferring all of your trademarks 
in your home country and in China to this Chinese counterparty. And that you're, when you sign this, you'll be giving that away to them basically forever because good luck getting it back. You will not get it back. Um, and the guy was like, what? <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, this is an assignment, you know, clause. And I'm like, yeah. And, and they thought like, well, if I, if I assign them, then, well, maybe that makes sense. Cause if I assign all the trademarks, that the counterparty will feel like they're actively engaged with my business. I'm like, no, they'll feel like you just gave them the keys to the car. I mean, exactly. You, know, <laughs> you just, you know, you're like, you know, they're going to be Ferris Bueller driving your dad. <laughs> Dri driving you know. your Ferrari, right? <laughs> That's right, you know. Oh, what do you, like, you know, don't, 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 don't do this. And, uh, you know, but then, they, they, of course, they'll turn around. These guys are the ones saying that'll turn right around and be like, you know, well, I got to turn you in the box. I can, you know, this is, this is so, uh, um, well, but like, you know, well, and there's so much that is so specific to this part of the reason. I mean, I guess that's part of the reason I'm not really afraid when there's these uh, law seminars talking about how um, how AI is going to replace every one of us. And I, I realize it's just, you know, so many of these things don't work. You know, there's so much, uh, so much of the world, you know, you have to know about local situations and local practices and local problems. Sure, sure. Agreed completely, which is why even philosophically from my standpoint i don't like the madrid protocol and for everyone who's listening who who doesn't know the madrid protocol that's that's the the uh the steps that one can take to take a home trademark registration into other jurisdictions but like i'm not a lawyer in france i'm not a lawyer in the uk i'm not a lawyer in prc i'm not a lawyer in, in taiwan <laughs> like like there are local there's local history local customs and of course, the local statutes. And while trademark law tends to be harmonized, the key word there is tends to be harmonized. <laughs> Canada is very different. India is very different. Oh, God, India is very different. You know, so. But <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a really, that's a, that's, a, that's a thing is that like, you know, all these places, there's enough difference across borders that like, you know, there's no, there isn't one, you know, system that, you know, that purely works. And with regards to uh, Madrid protocol filings, we all the time run across issues where uh, in the PRC, um, that's, that's where, you know, it goes through smoothly. Certain products will go through really smoothly in a lot of countries, but they don't necessarily go through so, so well in China. And you consider that like there's a vast amount of products that are exciting, fun stuff for, for people to have in say America or England. Uh, I'll give an example, like, um, you know, guitar amplifiers or stomp boxes, stomp boxes being the thing that changes the, the, uh, the sound, um, creates more distortion or creates, uh, you know, cool, uh, you know, certain kinds of effects, uh, sounds, changes the sound of the guitar of the signal as it goes from the electric guitar to the amplifier. And right. so we, uh, we, we do quite a bit of work in that sector and, and, you know, I, I can, tell you that uh, trademark examiners in China did not grow up with electric, you know, with garage bands and with uh, electric guitars and people just, you know, that's just not part of the, you know, <laughs> I mean, as it is, you know, like, you know, when they were growing up in, in uh, you know, uh, China, like getting an electric guitar and an amp was not the dream of like, you know, their parents, definitely not their parents. The parents are like, you know, you know, no, you can have a pencil. That's what you can have. You can have a pencil and you can have this abacus and maybe if you, if you do well, I'm going to get you a calculator and like, you know, and uh, you're going to become a doctor. You're going to become like, like their dreams for their children is definitely not to grow long hair. I mean, I, I can say probably the 1950s. That's so if you, if you actually like, I'm not, I'm not trying to say like, um, <laughs> if you go back to the 1940s or 1950s, there was probably the same mentality for American families. I don't want my kid growing up and being a hippie. <laughs> Right. Those beatniks. <laughs> it, it, does everybody want to look like a like a K-pop star? Is that what they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like, there's a there's a whole lot of devices that like when you try to describe it uh, using the existing approved terminology in the uh, in the in the Chinese, you know, um, you know, in class nine or class fifteen. 
I mean, you can have a greater latitude in class 15 for musical instruments than the class that handles music. Right. Instruments. Understood. In class nine, you know, suddenly you're like, you're trying to get into certain things and you, you know, it's really dangerous sometimes to listen to what the, what the examiner tells you because the examiner will sometimes say, I've got an issue with this term and I want you to change it. And then they're suggesting you change it towards something and you can't be complacent because they may actually push you towards something that will create a conflict like a few weeks later. Mm-hmm. And so now your, your trademark is clashing up against, and you're like, Oh crap. You mean I've got to drop the term that you told me to totally use to, <laughs> Oh, uh. You know, um, uh, on, on that particular thought, and then we're going to have to wrap it up here. uh, uh, I was recently speaking to a potential client and I said, look, um, you've got, you've got uh, downloadable materials for on, on downloadable educational materials, but you also have stuff that on your website that you're not really able to download. So I went through everything. I'm like, you've got like a three class application there. And they're kind of like, uh, can we think about that? <laughs> <laughs> and of course I'm like, yes, absolutely. You can think about, you know, if you, if you want to cover all three or just one or, you know, whatever you'd like to, to, to do there, but I'm telling you for full coverage, you really should do all three. And I know it sounds silly that for educational materials, there's a difference between downloadable and not downloadable, but that's the <laughs> system we got. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's what we, it's, it's where we're at, you know, it's, <laughs> well, uh, you know, and, and we, we find it with some clients that, uh, you know, we have a client that, um, you know, uh, does uh, real estate development and, and everything else. And, and uh, that's one of the things I, I actually use a little bit as a cautionary tale, uh, you know, because love them to death. But like, you know, in the early days, they were so worried about, um, you know, every aspect about where their future business might go and where they might do. And they also started kind of a bit overthinking and we tried to get them away from doing this, uh, you know, so that, but they were thinking, well, we build buildings. Um, why don't we go and register for like all the stuff that goes into a building? So they started thinking windows, doors, tiles, um, you know, uh, you know, iron working for the staircase. And, and I'm like, whoa, sure. whoa, whoa, hold, hold off. You know, cause like, yes, your building contains these things, but that's not, you're not a dealer in windows. You're not a dealer in, you're not, you're not selling that. You're selling a building. And yes, it contains these things, but you're not, you know, <laughs> it'd be like if Gibson guitars were like to go for like, Oh, um, hey, well, we got to get registered for knobs and, you know, yeah, like <laughs> wood, wood. We're going to like register in the class for wood. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know what? You know what? Actually, th- this talk makes me um, makes me hopeful, to be honest with you, because, look, you've got clients that that while they're weathering the storm, I mean, there's economic activity happening. And, and I know there's economic activity happening because I've got. I've got, uh, my phone has never been busier than it has been the last three weeks. Um, so, so knowing that and hearing it from you, it, it does make me uh, hopeful that, that this is just a storm and that it might be difficult to weather. But I think we could, I think, I think our clients are going to be able to weather it for the most part. Well, and, and that's the thing. I mean, we've been, we've been crazy busy ourselves. And the good news is that, um, that's also led to greater efficiency for helping out clients because now that we've dealt with, you know, 50 times of uh, different clients asking us the same questions, um, like, you know, the on average clients are not having to spend very much because it is, there's some very universal worries coming out of the coronavirus situation. And, uh, you know, so people ask us what direction you think we think things are going. Um, I think actually, you know, things will be back to a, you know, in a, I want to be optimistic and um, I do realize that there's an awful lot of, you know, manufacturing um, that is going to get back you know, to normal now that, uh, the, you know, the latest news today, of course, is that Wuhan, the city that was like the center of the worst part of it was, uh, has now been uh, released from lockdown um, to a significant uh, extent. So I think that we're going to start seeing, um, and I guess like the main thing is, is for people you know, to communicate, you know, if you have a supply partner um, out there that, uh, you know, their, their production has been down, you know, to be understanding and not to lead in 
to, uh, you know, to fears or th- you know, not to give lots of threats, but to talk with them because they're probably under stress. And, you know, there's, there's good and bad ways to communicate with companies that are under stress. Um, and I, I always, you know, if you give a, if you give a business, uh, like a manufacturing partner a chance, um, I mean, some of them we just talked about, like the ones who are going to take advantage of this time to cheat, but there's going to be other companies out there that will, you know, if you engage with them as human beings and you talk with them and say, look, I understand things are not good. I hope you and your family's okay. And, uh, you know, I understand that you've got my molds and tooling, um, you know, can you get manufacturing back up online? And if not, you know, can we um, have the molds and tooling, our molds and tooling, <laughs> you know, kind of we have that back because we just, we do need to do it someplace else, but we, we do want to return to you as, uh, as a partner in the future. I mean, you know, trying to find ways to work things out for, for, for a long-term relationship. Yeah. You will not hear me disagree with a word that you just said, which is why we're friends. <laughs> yes yes and we're gonna have like uh you know i mean there's gonna be there's constant updates i mean that's one other thing is that like it seems that the the authorities are releasing constant tweaks and so we've also had our hands really busy here just trying to keep up we have uh spreadsheets literally we're like filling out spreadsheets as uh as information changes constantly about um you know um you know uh, where you need to wear a mask, which uh, where you don't need to wear a mask, uh, uh, what are the conditions for home quarantine? What are the uh, so like uh, my colleagues across a wide variety of practice areas are um, basically on you know uh, whether they're working working from home or working in the office. Uh, you know, there's uh, we're all busy. Excellent, John. All right. Well, thank you so much for for hopping on the call. And um, I mean, I, I hope uh, I certainly hope uh, I can see you later this year at one of our two conferences that may or may not happen. <laughs> that would be wonderful. I'm hoping that, like, you know, I had big plans to go to the United States this summer, and those have been scrapped. But I'm sure. Uh, but I'm very hopeful that uh, you know. I know you're a big baseball fan, and uh, it would be great if we could catch. Uh, you know, like some kind of sporting event or do something where, where we could actually, you know, uh, shake hands and toast with a, with a drink or two in a place that um, I, I hope is crowded. I'm with you completely on that 100%. Thank you, John. And remember everyone to subscribe to the Lawn Business Podcast and also don't forget to rate and I hope that you'll rate us five stars. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you again soon. Thanks, John. Sure thing. All the best. Take care. All right. Yes, 